Section 15 of National Geographic Magazine, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. Glaciers of the St. Elias Region Natural Divisions of Glaciers The glaciers of the St. Elias Region form two groups. The ice streams from the mountain are of the type found in Switzerland, and hence termed alpine glaciers. The great plateau of ice along the ocean formed by the union and expansion of alpine glaciers from the mountains belongs to a class not previously described, but which in this paper have been called Piedmont glaciers. The representative of the latter type between Yakutat Bay and Icy Bay is the Malaspina glacier. Both types are to be distinguished from continental glaciers. Alpine glaciers. The glaciers in the mountains are all of one type, but present great diversity in their secondary features, and might be separated into three or four subordinate divisions. The great trunk glaciers have many tributaries, and drain the snows from the mountains through broad channels, which are of low grade throughout all the lower portions of their courses. Besides the trunk glaciers and the secondary glaciers which flow into them, there are many smaller glaciers which do not join the main streams, but terminate in the gorges or on the exposed mountain sides in which they originate. These have nearly all the features of the larger streams, but are not of sufficient volume to become rivers of ice. A minor division of the alpine glaciers for which it is convenient to have a special name includes those that end in the sea and, breaking off, form icebergs. These may be designated as tidewater glaciers. Typical examples of this class are furnished by the Dalton and Hubbard glaciers, but other ice streams having the same characteristics occur in Glacier Bay, in Taku Inlet, and at the heads of several of the deep fjords along the coast of southeastern Alaska. A noticeable feature of the alpine glaciers of Alaska is that they expand on passing beyond the valleys through which they flow and form delta-like accumulations of ice on the plains below. This expansion takes place irrespective of the direction in which the glaciers flow, and, so far as may be judged from the many examples examined, is independent of the debris that covers them. It should be remembered, however, that none of the Alaskan glaciers thus far studied show marked inequalities in the distribution of the moraines upon their surfaces. Should one side of a glacier, on leaving a canyon be heavily loaded with marginal moraines while the opposite border was unprotected it is to be presumed that a deflection of the ice would take place similar to the change in direction recorded by the moraines around mono lake california the normal tendency of ice when not confined to expand in all directions and form a plateau is illustrated on a grand scale by the malaspina glacier the most important ice streams about Mount St. Elias and Mount Cook are indicated on the map forming Plate 8. The Tyndall, Guyot, and Libby glaciers, and the lower part of the Agassiz Glacier there represented, are taken from a map published by H. W. Topham. All of the other glaciers indicated on the map were hastily surveyed during the present expedition and are described to some extent in the accompanying narrative. By far the most important of these is the one named Seward Glacier. The Seward Glacier is of the alpine type 
and is the largest tributary of the Malaspina Glacier. Its length is approximately 40 miles, and its width in the narrowest part, opposite Camp 14, is about 3 miles. The main amphitheater from which its drainage is derived is north of Mount Owen and between Mount Irving and Mount Logan. The general surface of the broad level floor of this neve field has an elevation of approximately 5,000 feet. The snow from the northern and western side of Mount Irving, from the northern slope of Mount Owen, and from numerous valleys and canyons in the vast semicircle of towering peaks joining these two mountains, unite to form the great glacier. There is another amphitheater between Mount Owen and the Pinnacle Pass cliffs, supplied principally by snows from the northwestern slope of Mount Cook, which sends a vast flood of ice and snow into the main drainage channel. Other tributary glaciers descend the steep slopes of Mount Augusta and Mount Malaspina, and a lesser tributary flows eastward from Dome Pass. All of these ice drainage lines converge toward the narrow outlet of Camp 14, Plate 8, and discharge southward down a moderately steep descent several miles in length. Below Camp 14 there are other neve fields bordering the glacier, which contribute no insignificant amount of ice and snow to its mass. Between the extremity of the Hitchcock Range and the Samovar Hills, the path of the glacier is again contracted and greatly broken as it descends to the plateau below. The Seward Glacier, like all ice rivers of its class, has its neve region above and its ice region below. The limit between the two is the lower margin of the summer snow and occurs just above the icefall between the southern extremity of the Hitchcock Range and the Samovar Hills. All the neve region is pure white and without moraines, except at the immediate bases of the most precipitous cliffs. At the bases of the Corwin Cliffs, which rise fully 2,000 feet above its border, no debris can be distinguished even in midsummer. An absence of moraines along the base of Pinnacle Pass Cliffs was also noticed during our first visit, but when we returned over the same route in September, the melting of the snow had revealed many large patches of dirt and disintegrated rock. In several places near the bases of steep cliffs, strata of dirty ice containing many stones were observed in deep crevices. It was evident that vast quantities of debris were sealed up in the ice along the borders of the glacier, only to appear at the surface far down the stream where summer melting exceeds the winter accumulation. The surface of the glacier below the lower fall is composed of solid ice with blue and white bands and has broad moraines along its borders. The course of the glacier, after entering the great plateau of ice to which it is tributary, may be traced for many miles by bands of debris along its side. These moraines belong to the Malaspina Glacier and have already been referred to. At the outlet of the upper amphitheater, about six miles above Mount Owen, there is an ice fall which extends completely across the glacier. Below the pinnacles and crevasses formed by this fall, the ice is re-cemented and flows on with a broad, gently descending surface, gashed, however, by thousands of crevices, as shown in Plate 20, to the end of the Pinnacle Pass cliffs. It there finds a more rapid descent, and becomes crevassed in an interesting way. The slope is not sufficient to be termed a fall, but it causes a rapid in the ice stream. The change of grade in the bed of the glacier is first felt about a mile above Camp 14. 
a series of crevasses there begins which extends four or five miles downstream at first the cracks are narrow and tend upstream in the manner usual with marginal crevasses soon the cracks from the opposite sides meet in the center and form a single crevasse bending upstream in the middle a little lower down the crevasse becomes straight showing that the ice in the center of the current flows more rapidly than at the sides the more rapid movement of the center is indicated by the form of the crevasses all the way down the rapid after becoming straight they bow in the center and form semilunar gashes widest in the center and curving upstream at each extremity still farther down they become more and more bent in the center and at the same time greatly increased in breadth still lower the curve becomes an angle and the crevasses are v-shaped the arrow-like point directed downstream these parallel v-shaped gashes set in order one in front of the other are what gives the glacier the appearance of watered ribbon when seen from a distance with the change in direction and curvature of the crevasses there is an accompanying change in color the cracks in the upper part of the rapid are in a white surface and run down into ice that looks dark and blue by contrast lower down as the cracks increase in width broad white tables are left between them cross fractures are formed and the sides of the table begin to crumble in and fill up the gaps between as the surface melts the tables lose their pure whiteness and become dust-covered and yellow but the blocks falling into the crevasses expose fresh surfaces and fill the gulfs with pure white ice in this way the color of the sides of the crevasses changes from deep blue to white while the general surface loses its purity and becomes dust-covered far down the rapid where the v-shaped crevasses are most pointed the tables have crumbled away and filled up the gulfs between so that the watered ribbon pattern is distinguished by color alone the scars of the crevasses formed above are shown by white bands on a dark dust-colored surface before the lower fall is reached nearly all traces of the thousands of fissures formed in the rapids above had disappeared on looking down on the rapids from any commanding point the definite arrangement of the crevasses along the center of the ice stream at once attracts attention and their order suggests a rapid central current in the stream below camp fourteen for at least two or three miles as well as at many places above that point the seward glacier flows between banks of snow along its border there are marginal crevasses trending upstream and in the adjacent banks there are similar breaks trending downstream when the two systems meet there is a line of irregular crevasses exceedingly difficult to cross which mark the actual border of the flowing ice a similar arrangement of marginal crevasses and of shore crevasses has been referred to in connection with the marvine glacier and was observed in many other instances while occupying camp fourteen we could hear the murmur of waters far down in the glacier below our tent but there were no surface streams visible crashing and rumbling noises made by the slowly moving ice frequently attracted our attention and sometimes at night we would be awakened by a dull thud accompanied by a trembling of the rocks beneath us as if a slight earthquake had occurred occasionally a pinnacle of ice would fall and be engulfed in the crevasses at its base these evidences of change indicated that the movements of the seward glacier were constantly in progress a short base line was measured 
and sites taken to well-marked points in the Seward Glacier for the purpose of measuring its motion. The angles between the baseline and lines of sight to the chosen points were read on several successive days, but when these observations were compared they gave discrepant results. The measurements which seem most reliable indicate that the central part of the ice stream has a movement of about 20 feet a day. This is to be taken only as an approximation, which needs to be verified before much weight can be attached to it. Characteristics of Alpine Glaciers Above the Snow Line The surface of the Neve is white, except near its lower limit, in late summer, where it frequently becomes covered with dust blown from neighboring cliffs. It is almost entirely free from moraines, but at the bases of steep slopes small areas of debris sometimes appear at the surface when the yearly melting has reached its maximum. The absence of moraines is accompanied by an absence of glacial tables, sand cones, and other details of glacial surfaces due to differential melting. Streams seldom appear at the surface, for the reason that usually the water produced by surface melting is quickly absorbed by the porous strata beneath. Yet the crevasses are frequently filled with water, and sometimes shallow lakes of deep blue occur at the bottoms of the amphitheaters and form a marked contrast to the even white of the general surface. Crevasses are present or absent according to the slope of the surface on which the neve rests. In the crevasses the edges of horizontal layers of granular ice are exhibited, showing that the neve down to a depth of at least one or two hundred feet is horizontally stratified. In the St. Elias region, the strata are most frequently from 10 to 15 feet thick, but in a few instances, layers without partings over 50 feet thick were seen. The surface is always of white, granular ice, but in the crevasses, the layers near the bottom appear more compact and bluer in color than those near the surface. Some of the most striking features of the Neve are due to the crevasses that break their surfaces. The orderly arrangement of marginal crevasses and of the interior crevasses at the rapids in the Seward Glacier have already been referred to, but there are still other crevasses, especially in the broad, gentle sloping portions of the snow fields where the motion is slight, which, although less regular in their arrangement, are fully as interesting. The crevasses on such slopes generally run at right angles to the direction in which the snow is moving. On looking down on such a surface, the breaks look like long, clear-cut gashes, which have stretched open in the center, but taper to a sharp point at each end. The ability of the neve ice to stretch to a limited extent is thus clearly shown. The initiation of the crevasses seems to be due to the movement of the neve ice over a surface in which there are inequalities of such magnitude that the ice cannot stretch sufficiently to allow it to accommodate itself to them, so that strains are produced which result in fractures at right angles to the line of general movement. Crevasses found where the grade is gentle vary from a fraction of an inch to ten or fifteen feet in width, and are sometimes two or three thousand feet long. Broader gulfs are seldom formed unless the slope has an inclination of fifteen degrees or twenty degrees. The grandest crevasses are in the higher portions of the neve, and occur especially on the borders of the great amphitheaters. In such situations, the crevasses are usually fewer in number, but are of greater size than an equal area lower down. 
a length of three or four thousand feet and a breadth of fifty or more is not uncommon the finest and most characteristic glacial scenery is found among these great canyon-like breaks standing on the border of one of these gulfs as near the brink as one cares to venture their full depth cannot usually be seen in some instances they are partially filled with water of the deepest blue in which the ice walls are reflected with such wonderful distinctness that it is impossible to tell where the ice ends and its counterfeit begins the walls of the crevasses are most frequently sheer cliffs of stratified ice with occasional ornamentations formed of ice crystals or a pendant icicle after a storm they are frequently decorated in the most beautiful manner with fretwork and cornice of snow the bridges spanning the crevasses are usually diagonal slivers of ice left where the clefts overlap but at times especially in the case of the larger crevasses there are true arches resembling the natural bridge of virginia but on a larger scale spanning the blue canyons and adding greatly to their strange fairy-like beauty the most striking feature of these cracks is their wonderful color all tints from the pure white of their crystal lips down to the deepest blue of their innermost recesses are revealed in each gash and rent in the hardened snow above the snow line all of the mountain tops that are not precipitous are heavily loaded with snow where the snow breaks off at the verge of a precipice and descends in avalanches a depth of more than a hundred feet is frequently revealed but in the valleys and amphitheatres the snow has far greater thickness pinnacles and crests of rock rising through the icy covering indicate that the thickness of the neve must be many hundreds of feet there are no evidences of former glaciation on the mountain crests which project above the neve fields there are no polished and striated rock surfaces or glaciated domes to indicate that the mountains were ever covered by a general capping of ice as has been postulated for similar mountains elsewhere when the glaciers had their greatest expansion the higher mountains were in about their present condition the increase in the volume of the glaciers was felt almost entirely in their lower courses characteristics of alpine glaciers below the snow line the first feature that attracts attention on descending from the neve region to the more icy portions of the glaciers is the rapid melting everywhere taking place every day during the summer the murmur and roar of rills brooks and rivers are to be heard in all of the ice fields the surface streams are usually short on account of the crevasses which intercept them they plunge into these gulfs which are many times widened out by the flowing waters so as to form wells or moulins and join the general drainage beneath the streams then flow either through caverns in the glaciers or in tunnels at the bottoms while traversing the glacier one may frequently hear the subdued roar of rivers coursing along in the dark chambers beneath when no other indication of their existence appears on the surface when these subglacial streams emerge usually near the margin of the ice they issue from archways forming the ends of tunnels and perhaps flow for a mile or two in the sunlight before plunging into another tunnel to continue their way as before the best example of a glacial river seen during our exploration was near the western border of the lucia glacier it is shown in the illustration forming plate twelve which is reproduced mechanically from a photograph this styx of the ice world has been described on an earlier page the lakes formed at the southern end of nearly every mountain spur projecting into the malaspina glacier discharged through tunnels in the ice 
which are similar in every way to those formed by the stream already mentioned. In the beds of the glacial streams there are deposits of sand and gravel, and when the streams expand into lakes these deposits are spread over their bottoms in more or less regular sheets. When streams from the mountains empty into the lakes, deltas are formed. While these deltas have the same characteristics as those built in more stable water bodies, many changes in detail occur owing to the fluctuation of the water level. One of the tunnels leading to a dry lake bed at the end of the Hitchcock Range was explored for several rods and found to be a high arching cavern following a tortuous course, and large enough to allow one to drive a coach and four through it without danger of collision. Its floor was formed of gravel and boulders, and its arching roof was clear ice. Here and there the courses of crevasses could be traced by the stones and finer debris that had fallen in from above, giving the appearance of veins in a mine. The deposit on the floor of the tunnel rested upon ice, and would certainly be greatly disturbed and broken up before reaching a final resting place, in case the glacier should melt. In the lake basins, also, the sand and gravel forming their bottoms frequently rested upon substrata of ice, and are greatly disturbed when the ice melts. At the ends of the glaciers, the subglacial and intraglacial drainage issues from tunnels and forms muddy streams. These usually flow out from the foot of a precipice of ice, down which rills are continually trickling. The streams flowing away from the glaciers are usually rapid, owing to the high grade of their built-up channels, and sweeping away large quantities of debris which is deposited along their courses. The streams widen and bifurcate as they flow seaward, and spread vast quantities of boulders, sand, and gravel over the country to the right and left, not infrequently invading the forests and burying the still upright trees. The deposits formed by the streams are of the nature of alluvial fans, over which the waters meander in a thousand channels. Where this action has taken place long enough, the alluvial fans end in deltas, but should there be a current in the sea, the debris is carried away and formed into beaches and bars along adjacent shores. Should these glaciers disappear, it is evident that these great boulder washes would form peculiar topographic features, unsupported at the apexes, and it might be perplexing to determine from whence came the waters that deposited them. I am not aware that similar washes have been recognized along the southern border of the Laurentide glaciers, but they should certainly be expected to occur there. Another very striking difference in the appearance of the glaciers above and below the snow line is due to the prevalence of debris on the lower portion. The melting that takes place below the snow line removes the ice and leaves the rocks. In this manner the stones previously concealed in the neve are concentrated at the surface and finally form sheets of debris many miles in extent. So far as my observations go, there is nothing to indicate that stones are brought to the surface by any other means than the one here suggested. Upward currents in the ice that would bring stones to the surface have been postulated by certain writers, but nothing sustaining such a hypothesis has been found in Alaska. The moraines on the lower extremities of the alpine glaciers may frequently be separated into individual ridges, which in many instances would furnish instructive studies, but in no case has the history of these accumulations been worked out in detail. With the appearance of moraines at the surface come a great variety of phenomena due to unequal melting. 
ridges of ice sheathed with debris glacial tables sand cones etc everywhere attract the attention but these features are very similar on all glaciers where the summer's waste exceeds the winter's increase and have been many times described the general distribution of the moraines of the lower portion of the alpine glaciers of the st elias region merits attention the moraines themselves exhibit features not yet observed in other regions from disenchantment bay westward to the seward glacier the lower portions of the ice streams are covered and concealed by sheets of debris about their margins the debris fields support luxuriant vegetation and not infrequently are so densely clothed with flowers that a tint is given to their rugged surfaces on the extreme outer margins of the moraines there are sometimes thickets and forests so dense as to be almost impenetrable the best example of forest-covered moraines resting on living glaciers however is found along the borders of the Malaspina icefield. Piedmont Glaciers This type is represented in the region explored by the Malaspina Glacier. This is a plateau of ice having an area of between 500 and 600 square miles, and a surface elevation in the central part of between 1500 and 1600 feet. It is fed by the Agassiz, Seward, Marvine, and Hayden glaciers, and is of such volume that it has apparently displaced the sea and holds it back by a wall of debris deposited about its margin. All of its central portion is of clear white ice, and around all its margins, excepting where the Agassiz and Seward glaciers come in, it is bounded by a fringe of debris and by moraines resting on the ice. Along the seaward border the belt of fringing moraines is about five miles broad. The inner margin of the moraine belt is composed of rocks and dirt without vegetation and separated more or less completely into belts by strips of clear ice on going from the clear ice toward the margin of the glacier one finds shrubs and flowers scattered here and there over the surface farther seaward the vegetation becomes more dense and the flowers cover the whole surface giving it the appearance of a luxuriant meadow still farther toward the margin dense clubs of altar with scattered spruce trees become conspicuous while the outer margin spruce trees of larger size form a veritable forest that this vegetation actually grows on the moraines above a living glacier is proved beyond all question by holes and crevasses which reveal the ice beneath the curious lakes scattered abundantly over the moraine covered areas and occupying hourglass shaped depressions in the ice have already been described from the southern end of the samovar hills where the Seward and Agassiz glaciers unite, there is a compound moraine stretching southward, which divides at its distal extremity and forms great curves and swirl-like figures, indicating currents in the glacier. All the central part of the plateau is, as already stated, of clear white ice, free from moraines. At a distance it has the appearance of a broad snow surface. This is due to the fact that the ice is melted and honeycombed during the warm summer, and the surface becomes vescular and loses its banded structure. A rough, coral-like crust, due to the freezing of the portions melted during the day, frequently covers large areas and resembles a thick hoarfrost. Crevasses are numerous, but seldom more than a few feet deep. They appear to be the lower portions of deep crevasses in the tributary streams, which have partially closed 
or else not completely removed by the melting and evaporation of the surface. Many of the crevasses are filled with water, but there are no surface streams and no lakes. Melting is rapid during the warm summer days, but the water finds its way down into the glacier and joins the general subglacial drainage. It is evident that the streams beneath the surface must be of large size, as they furnish the only means of escape for the waters flowing beneath the Agassiz, Stewart, and Marvane glaciers, as well as for the waters formed by the melting of the great Malaspina glacier. The outer borders of the Malaspina glacier are practically stationary, but there are currents in its central part. Like the expanded ends of some of the alpine glaciers, as the Galliano and Lucia glaciers, for example, this glacier is of the nature of a delta of ice, analogous in many of its features to river deltas. As a stream in meandering over its delta builds up one portion after another, so the currents in an expanded ice foot may now follow one direction and deposit loads of debris, and then slowly change so as to occupy other positions. This action tends to destroy the individuality of the moraine belts and to form general sheets of debris. The presence of such currents, as here suggested, has not been proved by measurements, but the great swirls in the Malaspina glacier and the tongues of clear ice in the upper portions of the debris fields on the smaller glaciers strongly suggest their existence. The Malaspina glacier is evidently not eroding its bed. Any records that it is making must be by deposition. Should the glacier melt away completely, it is evident that the surface formed of glacial debris and very similar to that now existing in the forested plateau east of Yakutat Bay, would be revealed. The former extent of the Malaspina glacier cannot be determined, but it is probable that during its greatest expansion it extended seaward until deep water was reached, and broke off in bergs in the same manner as do the Greenland glaciers at the present day. Soundings in the adjacent waters might possibly determine approximately the former position of the ice front, and it is possible that submarine moraines might be discovered in this way. The Pimpluna reefs, reported by Russian navigators and indicated on many maps, may possibly be a remnant of the moraine left by the Piedmont glacier from the adjacent coast. The glaciers west of Icy Bay were seen from the top of Pinnacle Pass cliffs and are evidently of the same character as the Malaspina glacier and fully as extensive. A study of these Piedmont glaciers will certainly throw much light on the interpretations of the glacial records over northeastern North America. Their value in this connection is enhanced by the fact that they are now retreating and making deposits rather than removing previous geological records. The expedition of last summer was a hasty reconnaissance during which but little detail work could be undertaken. The actual study of the ice fields of the St. Elias region remains for those who come later. End of section 15